Uh, I'm going to be doing our scripture reading this morning, and our scripture reading comes from uh, two different sections of the, uh, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6, starting at verse 8, and then we're going to jump down to Acts chapter 7, uh, verse 54. This is the word of the Lord. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who begun to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit had, uh, gave him as he spoke. Uh, then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against the holy place, this holy place, and against the law. For we have heard him say that his, this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and, and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and as they saw his face was like the face of an angel. Uh, at this point, Stephen goes on to preach uh, a sermon, the longest sermon that we have recorded in the book of Acts. Uh, and this is what happens after he's uh, interrupted from preaching a sermon. Verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked upon heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning, stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When, they had fought, when he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we come now to a very sobering moment in the life of the church, uh, where we meet uh, the first of many people, millions of people, who over the years uh, have had their lives taken from them because of their faith. Uh, and so, Lord, this uh, morning, as we consider together uh, the reality of martyrdom uh, and the person of Stephen, uh, help us, Lord, to realize that that is not a, something of the distant past, but that it is a present reality that our brothers and sisters around the world face. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've been working our way through the book of Acts, one of the constant themes that you've, we've been seeing again and again is that there's this real push against the church as it's growing. Uh, and this push against the church has come in three different types. Uh, one has been the internal opposition. So you remember Ananias and Sapphira, they try to lie to the church. Uh, and then secondly, last week, we looked at the issue of the widow's 
and how there was this uh, possibility of the leadership of the church getting distracted from the primary focus that they needed to have. And we considered last week why when they say we need to give ourselves to the ministry and word and prayer, that that wasn't, uh, that they were actually acknowledging the importance of caring for the widows and importance of mercy, but not losing the sight of being distracted from the ministry of word and prayer and the importance that that had. But certainly the most a recurring theme of opposition that we've seen is the opposition from the religious establishment, from the, from the political, religious, religious leaders who had political power in Jerusalem. That's been the most consistent uh, uh, conflict that the church has had. And so as we come today, what we're seeing is, is when it finally erupts. Uh, it, it, it finally bubbles over and uh, a man is killed. Uh, Early on in the pandemic, I came across an Australian pastor by the name of Mark Sayers, uh, and he's had a, a significant impact. I've listened to all, a lot of his podcasts, some of his sermons, uh, and have really benefited from his, uh, his teaching and his exposition about culture in general. And he made a comment that has really stuck with me, and as I was preparing for this week, thought, man, this is a perfect example uh, of this statement. Hard soil becomes holy ground with the presence of God. Uh, And that really is, I think, what we see here. Hard soil becoming holy ground when God shows up. So what we're going to see briefly is we're going to see briefly how Stephen is a man of God. Uh, Then we're going to see briefly how Stephen is a messenger from God. And we're going to spend the bulk of our time considering how Stephen is a martyr for God. And what we see is, I think, that uh, God is glorified uh, when his saints are killed in his name. Uh, it's a sobering reality, but it's one that we see even today. So let's jump into this. Uh, first of all, Stephen is a man of God. I want you to, there's a slide that you're going to see here right now of a list of verses. And if you have your Bible open, I think this is something worthwhile seeing. Notice the repeated emphasis of Stephen as a spirit-filled individual. Uh, you know, this is not cut and paste time, right? So when you have repeated emphasis on somebody having the Spirit of God, what do you think that's meant to imply? That he had the Spirit of God, right? This is a very godly individual. In fact, what I'm going to submit to you, what I want to try to convince you of, is that Stephen is presented to us, not as a, in a theoretical way, but as a real picture of what Christ-likeness looks like. Because we're going to see repeatedly how he is, a, he is like Christ. He is like Jesus in the way he is being portrayed for us in this passage. Uh, he is, and this doesn't happen, this repeated, you know, he's, he's full of faith, he's full of the Holy Spirit, he is full of grace and power. That doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? What have we seen about the church? What we've seen about the church is that they have been dedicated to what? The teaching of the apostles. So, so a group of people who are dedicated to God's word, who are dedicated to, to being formed into the image of Jesus, this is the kinds of description. Stephen is not, um, Stephen is not an apostle. Uh, Stephen is not this like super high holy person. Stephen is you and me. And so what I think is partly being presented is the reality of what Christ-likeness can look like. Now, 
the other thing that's really important is that here's this picture of who he is. And so therefore, we're trying to underline and emphasize the fact that he is not guilty of what he's being accused of. The passage tells us that, right? It says that false witnesses come. But it's not just that these are false witnesses. It's that if you, if you weigh the testimony of these false witnesses against what you see about Stephen, you see that there's no way that this can be true. What do, they, what do they say? They secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Would a spirit-filled, godly man ever do that? No. You can answer back. It's okay. You can answer back, all right? No, he wouldn't do that, right? But here's the thing. He is Christ-like. What happened to Jesus? He was persecuted. That's exactly right. And he was also falsely accused. Matthew 26, we see this. Uh, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, the same group of people, okay, same group of people, were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they couldn't find any. And so, and though many false witnesses came forward, finally two came forward and declared, this fellow has said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Stephen is like Christ, not only in his godliness, not only in his pursuit of a godly life, he is also like Christ in that he is falsely accused, okay? Now, what is he falsely accused of? What's the message? This is the second point, right? Uh, what's the message that he is falsely accused of having? It's the same message that Jesus preached. Um, now, what, um, what, what you see here. This is something that a couple commentators noted that, that is really fascinating. What you're seeing as you, as you see this composite of who Stephen is, uh, we've already been told that he's a really compassionate individual. Uh, he's one of the seven individuals chosen to care for the widows uh, and their needs. So this is someone who has a track record of, of godly compassion, care, concern for the most vulnerable. Then at the beginning of the passage, we see not only that, but that he's doing signs and wonders. Now, that, that phrase, signs and wonders, that means that this guy, the Spirit was at work in him in such a way that miracles were happening through him. Okay? And then we're told that as people try to argue with him and try to, uh, try to um, refute what he's saying, is that they can't do it because his arguments are so persuasive. And so the picture that you have, what some commentators have said, is that the picture that you have here is that Stephen is a man who is mighty in word and in deed. And that's exactly how Jesus is described for us in Luke 24, as a prophet who is mighty in word and in deed. And what is Stephen preaching? What is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the very same thing that Jesus was talking about, right? He's talking about the temple. Now, here's the problem. Have you ever been, uh, in a, have you ever been a part of a, of a church? I've only ever seen this really in churches. Have you ever been a part of a church where they've come to uh, idolize the building? Okay? Um, so, so you know that, that when that happens, and churches aren't the only ones that are capable of doing this, but I've only seen it really in, in the church context, right? What ends up happening is that, that anything that is said against the building is seen as awful, right? That's what's happened to the religious leaders. They've lost sight of what the temple was supposed to be about. The temple was the way for people to enter into the presence of God. It was the way that God was going to make himself known to his people. The building was a means towards the end of a relationship with God. 
but they had come to value the building as an end in itself. And so when Jesus says, I, there's a, I'm going to destroy the temple and in three days, I'm going to rebuild it, what they heard was blasphemous because they couldn't stop to consider what on earth he was saying. Because what he was saying is that I am now the way that you have access to God and that I am going to, my temple of my body is going to be destroyed by being crucified on the cross. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again from the dead, thereby making it possible for you to have access to God in a way that, that you never would have been able to with the temple. And that's the message that Stephen is preaching. And that message was blasphemous to the religious leaders. They couldn't stand it. They couldn't, they, couldn't, um, uh, they couldn't abide by what Stephen was saying. Because Stephen was preaching that faith in Christ, the resurrected Jesus, was the way that we enter into the presence of God. Amen? All right. Now, we've seen that Stephen is a, uh, a man of God. He is, he is repeatedly presented to us as uh, God, uh, um, spirit-filled in his wisdom, grace, power, okay? We've seen that he's a messenger from God, and the message that he is preaching is the message of the gospel. We're going to look at that uh, briefly next week when we, do, uh, when we look at the actual sermon itself. Now, let's zero in on Stephen as a martyr for God. The word martyr comes from the Greek word that we translate wit as witness. Uh, and so the, to be a martyr in the Christian sense of the word, to be a martyr means that you are a witness to the truth of the gospel at the expense of your life. Okay, that's what the, Christ, that's what the word martyr means. And so what happens in the passage is this. Remember, we looked at this last week, that... Back in chapter 4, the religious leaders are annoyed. And then at the beginning of chapter, or we looked at this two weeks ago, I think. And then at the beginning of chapter, um, I think it was 6, they're filled with jealousy. Uh, and then a little bit later, it says that they're filled with murderous rage. Okay, well now what we see is that they are gnashing their teeth. Now, I don't know about you, but I've read that before, and I was like, throw away sentence, whatever, move on to the rest of the passage. Uh, but this week, I stumbled onto something that made me go, oh, wait a minute, right? Psalm 37.2, the wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. So what Luke is saying is that they have, the, the religious leaders are now the wicked, right? And that's going to be born into full fruition in a second. Because what happens is Stephen preaches this sermon, and then he gets interrupted when he accuses them of being just like those who just killed the prophets before, they lose, their, they lose their minds. They drag him not just out of the Sanhedrin, not out of the court of the Sanhedrin. They drag him out of the city because you don't kill people inside Jerusalem, right? You kill them outside of the city. So they drag him outside of the city. Now, uh, one of the um, extra biblical resources that we have that kind of talks about that period of time uh, says that when someone was stoned during this particular period of time, that what would happen is they would drag the individual up to a ledge and they would arrange it so that they, this individual would get pushed off the ledge and fall flat on their back. 
If that did not kill them, then what they would do is they would take a giant boulder and they would roll it off and have it land on the person's chest. If that did not kill them, then they would get their stones and they would start throwing them. And we're not talking little pebbles. We're talking good-sized little boulders here. And they would throw them again and 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 again until the person was killed. I once made the uh, decision to look up modern-day stoning. It is awful. It is an awful way to be killed. That is what happens to Stephen. Now, we don't know if he was pushed off the ledge. We don't know if a boulder was thrown on his chest. But what we do know is that he was encircled by the false witnesses. What we do know is that Saul of Tarsus, who goes on to become the apostle Paul, was there. And he was saying, go get him, boys. And Stephen died. But while that's going on, something else is happening. While that is going on, Stephen cries out, Father, forgive them. Now, I'm aware of the fact, and this is an unfortunate reality, I'm aware that probably for many of us in the room, the only context that we have with the word martyrdom is associated with Islamic extremism. And so when we think of a martyr, we think of a suicide bomber. And when we think of a suicide bomber, we think of someone who uses religious extremism as a way of taking life. What I want you to see is that Christian martyrdom could not be any different, any more different than that. Because here is a man whose life is being taken away from him, and he is, who is he like? Who else, when he was being killed, said, Father, forgive them? So Stephen is Christ-like even in his death. And that is what Christian martyrdom looks like. And then something really amazing happens. Uh, Something that is outstanding. Remember what I said? Hard soil becomes holy ground when? When God shows up. Verse 55, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus, where is he? Right hand of God. What's the right hand of God? It's the throne. Jesus is at the throne. Jesus is the king ruling over Stephen's life as he is being killed. When do kings stand? Kings don't stand for just anybody. Who do kings stand for? For those whom they want to honor. For those whom they want to welcome into their kingdom. So here's Jesus. Stephen's being killed. And Jesus stands and says, Stephen, welcome. This is holy ground, friends. This is a sacred moment where in the midst of tragedy and destruction and everything that is evil and vile, Jesus shows up and says to Stephen, I'm honoring you. That's a profound moment. Now, that happens in probably around 34 A.D., 
And it would be really tempting for us to say, well, that's, um, that's sad, it's tragic, right? But that's a thing of the past. Uh, do you know what happens to the rest of the apostles? Then we might be having to jump a, a slide ahead here uh, for the AV team. There it is. This is the list of the apostles. James was beheaded in Jerusalem. Philip was crucified in Hierapolis. Matthew was beheaded in Ethiopia. James, son of Alphaeus, was stoned to death in Jerusalem. Peter and Paul are both crucified around 69 AD in Rome. Matthias, that's the guy that replaces Judas Iscariot, he was killed in Jerusalem after coming home from a missionary journey in the Black Sea. Andrew was crucified in Greece. Thaddeus was shot to death in Armenia. We're not sure if it was with arrows or with javelins because there's conflicting accounts. Bartholomew uh, was also in Armenia with Thaddeus and he was beaten, beaten with a whip till his skin fell off and then he was crucified. Thomas died in India after running afoul of a Hindu priest and Simon the Zealot around 74 AD was crucified and then for good measure was sawn in half. The only apostle that doesn't, doesn't get martyred is John, and he's exiled on an island. But that's the past. Well, let's move on forward to history. Um, a, around 155 AD, one of the more famous martyrdoms of the church, uh, Bishop Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, 86 years old, uh, the proconsul takes pity on him and says, you're an old man, just say Caesar is Lord and I won't kill you. This is during a period of heavy persecution by the Roman Empire of the church. And his words were, 86 years I have served Christ. He never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? 1553, John Calvin writes a letter to five men who are, about to be, who are about to be killed in France. They're missionaries in France, and the French government was like attacking the church. Uh, and, and Calvin was a Frenchman, and so he was trying really hard to work to help convince the king of France not to do this anymore. And this is a portion of the letter he writes to those five men who are about to be martyred. Since it pleases God to employ you to the death... He will strengthen your hand in the fight and will suffer not a single drop of your blood to be shed in vain. That's all in the past, right? Sadly, that's not all in the past. Um, the, 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 the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, which is based out of Gordon-Conwell Seminary, estimates that roughly 7 million people have been martyred. Uh, and their definition of martyrdom is, is there. Believers in Christ who have lost their lives prematurely in situations of witness as a result of human hostility. They estimate that uh, around 7 million Christians have been killed over the course of church history. More than half of those have been in the 20th century. Let that sit. 20th century. Our lifetime. Okay? Um, uh, a Christianity Today article uh, said that between 2000 and 2010, conflicting reports of what I read, between 1 million and 1.6 million Christians were killed. The decade of 2010 to 2020, approximately 800,000 Christians were killed. That's roughly 90,000 Christians a year. Just this past week, the organization Open Doors uh, which is another organization that tracks the persecution of the church around the world, uh, released a map with their most recent studies. 
North Korea has for years been the number one place of persecution of Christians. This year, North Korea fell to number two. Afghanistan is now the number one place for persecution of Christians in the world. The countries that are in orange are severe persecution. They're like the top, top tier. And the countries that are in yellow are places where Christians are under heavy persecution, but not to the same degree as in those other places. So what do we do with this? You see, like, here's the thing. Like, this is not the distant past of the church. This is our present reality, right? Right now, we get to do this out in public. We're not really concerned, right? We've got Richard, the security guard. Thank you, Richard. Uh, you know, but, but, it, but, like, I'm not concerned about showing up here and being arrested. I'm not, Right? But there are places around the world where we could never do this. And so what do we do with that? Two things. First of all, um, Philip, not Philip, I'm sorry, uh, Stephen presents us a picture of, of what godliness looks like, even in the most extreme examples. And so part of what this means for us is like, how do we follow the Christ-like example of Philip. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Well, if we, could, if we could take that application, let's imitate Stephen as we imitate, as he imitates Christ. A pursuit of godliness, and that doesn't happen in a vacuum. Uh, you know, Sermon on the Mount, I mean, I'm not saying that if you go to the Sermon on the Mount Bible study that you will be like Stephen, but in that sermon, Jesus says, blessed are you when people persecute you and revile you and utter all kinds of evil falsely against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad in that day for your reward will be great in heaven. So one thing that this calls us to is to pursue the life of godliness, to pursue the life of discipleship, to pursue to be formed by the word of God. And then the second thing that I think this calls us to is to pray for the persecuted church, to, to realize that right now around the world, brothers and sisters who claim the name of Jesus, who are part of the church, just like these folks that joined the church here this morning a little bit ago, right? take their life into their hands to follow the name of Jesus. And so what we're going to do this week is I'm going to send you guys some resources. I'm going to send you some resources so that you, if you're interested, if you're a history person, right, you can, you can explore more of the history of brothers and sisters who've been martyred, but also some resources to help you in your own personal life to think of how you can pray for the, the church around the world. Uh, just this week, Open Doors released uh, a prayer guide for, for this which they do every year. Uh, so Stephen gives us a picture of godliness. Uh, Stephen gives us a picture of what it means to follow Jesus, even the most extreme of circumstances, even in the face of death. Uh, let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for the life of Stephen, but we also thank you, Lord, for all of the brothers and sisters who over the years uh, have, been, uh, who, uh, have made the ultimate sacrifice. Uh, and as a result of their faith in Christ, have given us an example of what it means to honor you even to the point of death. Uh, Father, thank you that your word says that when we are persecuted, that our reward will be great in heaven. Uh, Lord, um, we thank you that we don't have to suffer persecution like that, but we recognize that brothers and sisters around the world to do. Uh, and so we pray for them this morning, that you would sustain them and strengthen them uh, this day, this week, this month, this year, uh, as they seek to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.